1: Hi there, and welcome back to Life Out Loud, a literary nonfiction podcast through which we tell true, maybe all too true, stories. I'm Edward, one of your hosts today.
2: And I'm Rebecca, back again and excited for this eighth episode of the second season, entitled Found in Translation.
3: And I'm Karen, hi!
4: And I'm Samantha. Yes, we're back with even more stories from new authors. In this episode, Found in Translation, we hear from three authors who go through some sort of translation experience and somehow find themselves lost, found, or maybe somewhere in between.
1: Our first story is by Nina Lam. Nina is a 22-year-old student at John Jay and is currently dealing with a dual major in English and Criminology. As well as a minor in writing, they started writing at a very young age, but had left it later on in life in order to pursue visual art. They didn't start writing again until freshman year of college. Although they're rusty, with enough elbow grease, they couldn't make it work. When they aren't typing their fingers into stubs or indistinctively eating their pens, they're likely trying to garner the favor of cats, smooching guys and gals, or obsessing over something. This obsession cycle consists of Jojo's bizarre adventures and the inevitability of death. Good grief.
2: Let's take a listen to Nina's piece, Too Good for Him.
0: It's your dad she murmured to me in Cantonese as she turned off the speaker. He needs to translate her. She paused and looked at her phone, and a small but still audible static whined its way from the earpiece and into my body, where it echoed there for longer than what seemed normal. I never quite understood my mother, at least in this regard. She had every reason in the book to hate him, my father. But she always went back, oftentimes with money in her hands and time on her shoulders that, quite honestly, would have been better used for what remained for a family, us. Herself, my brother, and I. He used to be my lover, and my first, she had said to me once. Her eyes glued to her work, monitoring the red and lime-green lines plastered all over the many charts etched across the computer screen. She had gotten good at hiding the tremble in her steady voice, but she hadn't rid herself of it entirely yet. I wonder if she ever would. Wonder if I'd respect her more if she did. She lowered her voice to just barely above a whisper and said, We have history. The clicks of her mouse dotted the ends of her sentences. It's not easy to forget that kind of history. I could barely remember any history, so I said nothing while I stared at the $450 of rent money on her desk that wasn't meant for us, but for him. As time crawled onward, I asked less and less about him. In fact, I didn't wonder whether or not he had been taking good care of himself after living by himself all this time. I didn't wonder if he had continued to work out as he always had. Though, whether that was for his job or for his after-hour peacocking, I was never sure. I had also long given up, wondering if he still thought of us. Truth was, I never wondered about him at all anymore. And so, I was surprised that day that his name even came up. She'd run to me, to my room, flip phone in hand, her finger over the speaker when she poked her head in. Are you free this Monday evening? She rushed her words, showing me that I better be. That she'd hoped I'd be. I'm talking about 6 p.m. I took off my headphones and stared at the doorway, away from my 7th grade homework assignment. Is something wrong? I'd ask. (sighs) The police caught him driving drunk. The judge said that he has to attend these classes now, but they won't give him a translator. She pursed her lips a bit before stretching them thin. And he can't afford a translator either. How is that my problem? I wanted to ask. I turned over to the next page of the assignment, only the beginning of a large package of questions, and tried to concentrate on them while she stood there, waiting. He had his chance, I wanted to say, but I said nothing, and neither did she, as she continued standing there, waiting for me to say yes with tired, pleading eyes and a bite to her lower lip, to say, yes, of course, I'll do it. Why not ask the friends that he left us for, I thought to myself, or the dozens of handfuls of younger women he allegedly didn't sleep with behind my mother's back, one honey in one hand and another honey in his other. My mother had said so herself. So why not them, Dad? Why couldn't they translate? Then they speak English and Chinese too? I continued staring ahead at the packet until, finally, I had to do something. So I shrugged. I'll think about it, I told her numbly. <sighs> I shouldn't have come here, I thought to myself. I had an essay on The Great Gatsby due the next day. I haven't even gone through half the damn thing yet. But no, can't do that. I have this shit to do instead. A splash of the late September breeze caresses my face when the rickety escalator at the J Street Metro Tech stop finally brings me to the top of the exit. The blue awning overhead blocks out the sun, but I can still see the edges of its rays shining over the stone tiles of the Dandy's clothing store across the street. The smell of greasy hot dogs and burnt wheat pretzels come from the far right side of the escalator. Another man stands on the edge of the sidewalk, but just as I am about to pass him, he sticks a sheet of green paper towards me and silently looks at my face. I grab onto the sheet, and his wide-eyed stare breaks into a smile, a real smile, the kind where your lower lids curl up over your eyes. One of us mumbles, thank you. It had been years since I had last seen my father in the flesh, and the absolute last time I'd seen him, I was ten years old. That day, I'd been on the computer and writing out the next chapter of my small-time original hit, Richard and Bella, a fairly sophisticated novella, I might add, for something written by a ten-year-old. My mother needed a ball of dough that she had been experimenting with, in secret, for the past month or so. I could have sworn it had spoiled due to the sour odor that wafted from the dining table all the way to the living room, but she reassured me, quite constantly, that the smell just meant that her secret yeast blend—whatever that was—was working. As I opened my mouth to complain about the stench once more, which had worsened when she added the apple vinegar and the sprigs of clumsily cut parsley into the mixture, the sound of clicking locks rendered me silent. As if by instinct, I clamored to hit file and save as I heard the sound of the door opening. Good fucking god, woman, he roared in angry Chinese. What the fuck is that smell? He tossed his toolbox on the top of the nearest shoe rack and kicked off his boots without undoing their laces. Without waiting for an answer, he stomped off to the shower. As always, a heavy smell of lotions soon flooded from the bathroom. I knew they'd linger too, even after he'd walked right back out of the apartment again. That night, he'd worn his expensive faux leather jacket, tight jeans, and boots too good for him. He thought he looked good, I knew. After he'd left, my mother continued to knead the dough. Over and over she kneaded it, her head down. She had cranked up the radio's volume then and said nothing. Suddenly, Richard's playful berating of Bella for her shoddy cooking seemed less funny. Before I knew it, I found myself scrapping the whole project altogether. I didn't know that would be the last time I saw my father. I sometimes wonder if my mother knew, though. With each block I pass, I am one step closer to meeting him. Me, who he hadn't seen or called in three fucking years. His loyal translator. I slow my pace, wincing at the thought of reaching the end of the sidewalk. He's nowhere to be seen, but I know I'm close. And the grip on my carrier is tightening. Why did I come here an hour too early? Why did I come at all? I guess I was afraid I'd get lost. Afraid I'd miss the appointment. Afraid he'd be waiting for me. Afraid I'd look dumb if I couldn't find a place and kept him waiting. Afraid... I'd mess this up again. I never was the brightest. Not in the family. Not in the neighborhood. Nowhere. Despite my tries, I've always had a rough time following simple directions. I tend to overthink them and mess them up because, well, I try too hard. So when I realize I am in the right place, I suddenly worry about what else could go wrong. What else could I mess up? What if I do something wrong this time, too? I take a gulp of air and consider taking off entirely. I don't know jack about car parts or traffic laws. I'm only 13. Of course I can't drive yet. What even is the word for traffic violation in Cantonese? Hell, how is it even written? Will they try to make me write? I can't write anything in Chinese. I can't. I'm going to mess this up. I know it. We'll make things even worse for him. Like I always do. I run my fingers through my hair. It sticks up in tight sprigs melded together by oil, sweat, and grease. Is he going to yell at me? Beat me? Stick my head between the back of a shelf and the edge of the wall again? A shock jolts down my arm and the side of my face at the thought. My father once took me to a supermarket when I was nine. This was perhaps the only time he took me anywhere with him, just me alone anyway. I wasn't expecting to be alone with him. I wasn't expecting to see him at 3 p.m. on Thursday either, but he was leaning against the decorated wall of the main entrance at my elementary school, near the security guards, toolbox next to his foot, hard hat on his head. He smelled of soot and wet cement, on top of a musk which vaguely resembled last night's liquor. But he said that he was here to pick me up. Your mother's busy, he said. Though I hesitated, I still confirmed that he was who he said he was to the guard. Maybe we'd do something fun, I told for a second. He walked fast to the supermarket, and I struggled to keep up, waddling behind his trail like a fat, awkward duckling. We had only spent a minute or two in there, time in which I didn't even consider asking for the soft cookies that sat out on the clearance sale rack near the entrance, my favorite at the time, when he suddenly stormed out of the market in a rage. I followed with a hand hiding one side of my face, embarrassed by his screaming. Turns out he wasn't able to tell the butcher what he wanted. Couldn't say the right English words. This, among other things, made him redder than a chili pepper and just as angry. Between his finger getting pressed up against the glass dome, the display being at a slant, and me standing from a different point of view, it was tough to discern whether he was pointing at the olive ham or the liverwurst. Clearly, the butcher couldn't tell either. I didn't see the expression on his face when my dad stormed off. Didn't get a chance to see if I could help. I probably could have. I mean, I probably knew the English word for it, but there hadn't been time for me to even try. And once he'd left, I couldn't order it without him. I didn't have any pocket money to pay for it. I could only reluctantly trudge off after him. I sometimes wondered if he still held that against me, if he even remembered it. He must have always been able to get the thing he wanted whenever my mother was with him. He wouldn't have been so mad if he hadn't, right? I wonder if I've been bad luck for him. He's still nowhere in sight. I have a whole hour to spare. An image of swaddling myself in my fuzzy blankets flashed in my mind, followed by a sudden yearning for home, where my mother is, no doubt, making me a celebratory dinner. Maybe something simple this time, for a job well done. My brother, though wheelchair-bound now, is probably having fun with his friends out in the park. Probably just like the one that's immediately on my right. My glasses threatened to fall off the bridge of my nose as I stared at the cement ground before me, trying to pass the time. I mindlessly, aimlessly dig my hand into my bag for the metro card that had brought me here in the first place. I don't have to do this for him. I could just go. Right. Now. A person in a navy blue hoodie and a messenger bag at their hip shove me aside as they make their way opposite of me. Until now, it hasn't even dawned on me that my feet have stopped moving and that I'm standing right smack dab in the middle of the sidewalk, where other busy people are trying to walk. I clear a path and sit on the nearby brick ledge. I finally manage to fish out the card. I'm going back, I think to myself. I can use this card to get back home to Flatbush, where I know he'll never step foot. I could do it. I could go. Right now. But I don't. I continue to remain seated and fiddle around with the cut edge, like it matters. Like there's some answer on the card. Something. Anything. Please, tell me if I'm doing the right thing, I ask it. (sighs) Every year or so, he would go back home, to China. Each trip usually lasted about a month, and it was usually in February, just in time for the New Year celebration festival. Though this usually meant that he wouldn't be celebrating the New Year with us, at the very least, he always tried to make it up by bringing back presents. Uh, The times he remembered, anyway. One March, when I was eight years old, I sat holding the red envelopes that were given to us by my maternal grandparents, when the sound of his expensive boots clunking against the wall coupled with a loud, I'm back, echoed through the frozen halls of our little apartment. My brother, then six, was the first to poke his head out into the living room when my father rolled his forest green suitcase through the door. I was happy he was home, but still cautious, I only peeked in from my mother's room and looked on ahead as he started to pull out boxes and toys. My brother grabbed them all, spinning them in his hands with joy. A paper yo-yo with swirly illustrations of the Chinese zodiac adorning the outer edges, a stack of clacking bamboo tiles bound together by thin, vibrantly colored ribbons, and a remote control helicopter pig with aqua blue propellers coming from its nose. For my mother, he held out a box lined with wine-colored crushed velvet. I was too far away to hear what he whispered into her ear, with a wry smile on his lips, but her eyes widened as she opened it to reveal a necklace and earring set, both encrusted with zirconia and topped off by large emeralds, resting on top of a creamy satin. She'd only shot him back a look, as if to ask him, How much did this cost? But only thanked him before closing the box with a tight snap. Where's the girl? he then asked. I silently greeted him from the doorway, hand in the air, but he only motioned for me to get closer. I know you like art, he'd said, as I poked the flaps of the box open, nervously. So your uncle suggested that I get you this book. You like it? The book's title was written completely in Chinese, but judging by the photo of a pair of scissors as well as a cutout of a sheep at the front, for the most part, I thought I was going to blabber on about the history of paper crafts. But wow, was I wrong. Instead, the pop-up cutouts sprang from the pages the moment I opened the book to a random page. Though the paper was about as thick as cardstock, the neon pink and muted yellow were able to twist into one another, like a braid, to form the shape of a monkey's arm as it stuck out from the page and at me. My jaws dropped at the sight, and I read on, eyes wide and awestruck. Good, huh? He said with a wide, thin-lipped grin plastered on his face, proud that I loved the gift. I didn't answer, I was too busy turning to another page with yet another pop-up and then to another one after that, each one more intricate and delicate than the last. That night, after i had reviewed the book thoroughly over and over, I placed it on top of my notebook and made sure that the side with the red envelopes was touching it. There's no turning back now. I know. If I hadn't yet, I'm not going to. I stuffed the Metro card back into my carrier and pushed my glasses back onto my bridge, the rims now only slightly damp from my breath. And it's then, past the park, that I make out a lone silhouette of a man standing by the entrance of a worn-down, brick-red cathedral. Though his back is turned, I know, right away, that it's him. I know, because I can see the bottom hems of his fake leather jacket starting to peel from its plastic backing. Even from here, I can see it. And as I walk closer, I can see that even more than I originally thought is flaking off the jacket, and that his jeans are a bit bigger than he is now. A large patch of white chalk powders the back of his knees. As I walk closer and closer, more and more of his shadow comes into focus. And as I take a deep breath, eyeing him up one more time before I begin to speak in Chinese, the only way that you can understand me. I see that the boots he wears are still too good for him.
4: Oh my goodness, I really love this story. It's really amazing. You you are such a great writer. The details in the story is just 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 amazing to me. Oh.
0: Thank you. Um I've been told uh sometimes that my detailing might be a little bit overboard but uh it's really nice to hear <laughs> no, that
4: i i actually think we took a took a fiction class together and actually do remember quite a few of your stories and i remember them being very detailed and i really really enjoy that
0: <laughs> uh, oh boy <laughs>
4: <laughs> so in your story you have to end up translating a lot and you d- describe in detail like how that makes you feel like in the moment but i'm wondering um how that relationship of a translator is now With your father and stuff like how
0: how do you feel about that now well to be honest um i don't exactly like you know keep in contact with my father much nowadays either um if anything he whenever he has a problem he just calls up my mom and uh and they don't usually uh they aren't usually like translation issues that he's been having if anything um it's mostly just you know paperwork and stuff uh and him like moving around and stuff because apparently he's a shit roommate um (laughs) <laughs> um yeah um from what i've heard so i mean like but uh like, I, didn't say <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't say it i didn't say it i didn't say it but you heard it here first but yeah um i our relationship isn't exactly it hasn't improved it hasn't deteriorated um any more than it already has and uh, if anything i'm just you know for myself i'm just trying to push him out of my life as much as i can like, I honestly don't know if I can continue dealing with his shit until he dies somewhere.
2: So working off of that question and that beautiful answer, <laughs> I'm wondering if the way that you talk about your father prioritizing other women, other people, I, this might be a personal question, but if, you, if you're comfortable telling us, uh, do you think that affected you in any way? Like, maybe the way you viewed yourself or are viewing yourself?
0: Whew, that's a well. I I think um, that question yeah ha- has like a really long answer. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the, the best ones do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, okay. As to how it had affected the way I viewed myself back when I was a kid, um, it just it made me feel like um, that I wasn't doing you know good and en- I wasn't like good enough for his attention and I wasn't good enough to uh, you know it's kind of like it's like when you're a kid and sometimes when you're at school you have like these teachers and they're making you do like oh like what's your family like and you know they make you draw them out they make you write about it Mm -hmm. and and then I hear all these stories about these kids with like awesome dads and I'm not one of them I mean for the most part it didn't bother me too much because my mom is fucking amazing Mm. But um, it's just that um, it's just that whenever I hear that you know somebody had like a, an awesome relationship with their dad, I couldn't help but feel maybe just maybe a little bit jealous. Mm.
2: No, well, of course,
0: yeah,
4: I feel like a um, a lot of people per- portray families to be like these picket white fence families with like perfect homes with the perfect mom and dad, but not everyone has a great dad or a great mom. I mean, like,
0: well, the American dream I, is dead, so. Yeah. <laughs> So I would you know, sometimes feel a little jealous and it's like, what do I have to do to make you treat me like, you know, like you kind of should, you know, you're like, mm-hmm. you're my dad, you're my old man, you're supposed to take good care of me. And I know that you work your ass off, you know, as a blue collar worker, but it's just you, you make it seem like you're doing this because it was a punishment of some yeah. sort. Yeah. And well, that was me when I was like a lot younger. Um, but as i got older i just you know and and then you know as i got older and my mom started talking to me more and more about the stuff that she left out because i was too young to understand or something like that it became clear to me that um that i and my brother yeah you know, my brother and i we were not what he wanted like he just wanted to be childless for the rest of his marriage if he could manage it and while i feel like you know it was like a pretty big slap in the face. I also have t- you know I also, after a while understood that um you know, maybe children just aren't for people aren't for some people, and maybe he was just one of them, and he was just saddled with someone who wanted children, and it was just unfortunate, and fate was being cruel that day or something at least that's why I can. Cont- that at least that's what I tell myself, you know, yeah that's.
4: That's amazing that you're strong enough to like like just just kind of like understand your father a little bit even though like you pr- you pretty much hate him for like neglecting you like that. That's that's a really hard thing to like come to terms with. I'm sure.
1: So with regards to um all these emotions that are within this writing piece, was it like was was it made difficult for you to with regard to the writing process, with regards like exposing too much about yourself i know that's something that some people fear is exposing too much with the with the like being like cautious of like being like oh she she must be a brat or like something like that which isn't the case in this piece what was the writing process like in um when you wrote this piece
0: hmm uh I'll I'll be perfectly honest. When I was writing the first draft of this piece, I wasn't too sure about how I felt. Um, if anything, I probably felt kind of numb. Like at at this point in my life, or at 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 that point in my life, I should say, um, I was already like I already was almost fu- I almost had like almost fully come to terms with uh, with the fact that this was how it was. You know, just a broken family and that's just what it was and sure yeah um it was there were some parts that were a little bit difficult because I was worried that I was being a little too overdramatic even if I was writing from the point of view of a child and it's like oh you you know how how some people view like you know, early teenagers, oh, you know, they're like so full of angst and they, they think they're, they think they have it worse, you know, they think that they have like, they have it bad, but there are other people out there who have it much, much, much worse at the same age, if not younger, and that I shouldn't, that, and that this isn't something I should be crying about. So that was like perhaps the biggest worry um, as I was writing this because I didn't want to come off as, um, as, you know, some sort of like brat. I wanted to come off as um, someone who just is just telling a story.
4: And you absolutely did not come off as a brat at all. Like Thank God. I, yeah, no, not at all. Like, I, I was reading this. I was just, I was, I felt, I, like, wanted the relationship to work, but at the same time, I was like, he doesn't deserve you as a daughter and stuff like that. So <laughs> you, you did a good job
1: telling your story. He you didn't sound like a brat at all.
0: <laughs> Thank you. I was, I'm glad to hear that. I was really worried about that. Uh,
1: yeah. So with all that being said, what would you like for readers to take away with them about your story?
0: Um, I am not entirely sure. Um, Like I said, when I wrote this story, I just was writing it because it was a story that I wanted to tell because it was something that had bugged me for quite a while and I wasn't too sure as to why. I'm not entirely sure what message I really wanted to leave on an you know or you know in part with an audience and um honestly it was mm, take of it what you will like the way i see it it's just a story about a kid trying to appease their father and and eventually just saying you know what this is how it is that's just it
2: beautiful (laughs) Well, thank you so much for being with us here tonight, Nina. Thank you so much for this beautiful story as well.
0: Thank you. I had um, a lot of fun uh, uh, you know, here today with you guys and uh I you know, hope that we can do this again at yeah. some point in the future. Yeah, for sure.
1: So do we. <laughs>
4: Our next author is Lilia Rusu. Lilia is a former law and society major at John Jay, who has a great passion for writing. Born and raised in Moldova, she studied foreign languages and currently works as a translator from home for Moldovan, Romanian, Russian, and Ukrainian languages. She's also busy taking care of her four-month-old baby boy. Having recently relocated from New York to Washington State, she is finding her new setting a perfect, tranquil place for writing and reflecting. She dreams of writing a book someday. Maybe she'll start with a book for children first.
1: Let's take a listen to, this title is in Latin, Per Aspera Ad Astra.
5: She always feared poverty. Poverty with a smell of mouth, humiliating, patched up, and painful. The kind of poverty that would age you faster and the kind that smashes dreams one by one like some dishes slammed on the floor during an ardent argument. Such poverty she'd never experienced, but somehow she knew it existed. She somehow knew to fear it. She was born and raised in Moldova, the poorest country in Europe. She wrote about it, she read about it. She let it stand near her, but poverty was never an invited guest into her house. She was immune from it. She wouldn't learn to be this kind of poor until Paris. There, she learned from single mothers, of which there are a large number. She learned from the romantic students, who did not have any material things. From older women, who wore silk stockings in any weather. From the supple mistresses, who you could not get mad at, or hold a grudge against. From women. She learned that you can have only one ring in your life, but it must be precious. That a good perfume can replace any dress. That you can skip a meal, but you must always wear lipstick. That a woman should appear as though she were born with polished and colorful nails with perfect skin. That you can have one flower in your house, but it has to be alive. That you can eat only bread, but it has to be fresh. That wine should live in the glass, not inside the bottle. That a cup of coffee can keep you awake until the morning of your new life. That a bike ride tells more about you than a ride in an expensive car. That chocolate can be more expensive than your entire lunch, especially when it replaces lunch completely. That you might have only one night of love, but that it must border on craziness. Every evening Estella went to feed the seagulls, just like women in the village where she grew up would feed the chickens on the farm. I looked at her from a cliff and thought, why would someone feed seagulls instead of chickens and watch water all around them instead of land? Estella had a basket full of bread, which she threw at the sea. The bread was stubborn and resisted free-falling. The wind took it up, it flew a little bit, and the hungry seagulls caught it from the air. I could not believe what time had done to her. I knew a different Estella. I knew a strong and confident Estella. An Estella with little fear. A prodigious Estella, who was a well-known journalist, reporter, and taught Latin and journalism at a prestigious university. She was successful and did not know need. She was happy. Even then, though, she never let the pride of her accomplishments overshadow her life. I learned many lessons from her through Latin. She was my professor in Moldova before she, along with so many other professors, professionals, intellectuals, were forced to leave one by one. Every one of them left sad. They packed up their knowledge and would not pass it on to the other more students they knew. Their pittance of $200 per month became not enough for survival. They would work for little, and so they became a treasure for Europe and a loss for Moldova. They had to swallow their pride, their honor, and dignity, roll up their sleeves, and accept work at the factories, restaurants, laundromats, homes of middle-class people. They babysat, washed, cooked, cleaned, and served all over Europe. In Europe, paid them with generosity for being diligent, responsible, hard workers. They paid them for pretending that they were made for these types of jobs, for pretending that they were happy there. Estella left Moldova long before poverty hit her like it did so many others who did not know to live in time, who didn't want to live in time. She was tired of reporting lies. Moldova was ruled by communists at that time. It did not feel right to her to report how great and prosperous the country was. She was tired of reporting that there was no corruption in Moldova, that there were no violations of human rights. She was tired to present the image of the country they wanted her to present. She had eyes and ears and could see and hear everything. Corruption, lawlessness, arbitrariness. She wrote well. She was a magician of writing. She knew to impress, to inspire, to persuade. And she refused to do it. She refused to be a tool in the hands of the authorities. She would rather be poor instead of receiving from them another dollar for deceptions and lies they wanted her to spread. She went to France to be an international reporter. It was her new big accomplishment, and we were proud of her. Her students, our teachers, we were all proud of Estella. I remember her favorite saying from class, aspera ad astra. Through difficulties to the stars, it meant. When we stumbled, when we were lost, when we did not know where we were heading and why, when we did not believe in our future, in our country, Moldova, we thought of this saying. It always seemed that she reached for all the stars and that for her, they were possible to reach. She made us feel that it was an easy thing to do. Where there is a will, there is a way, she would say in Latin, encouraging and picking us up from the deepest abysm. Every day, she was showing us the way to the stars. She was our star. What do you do now? Estella asked me when I spoke with her a few years later, when I finally asked her for the recommendation I needed for my internship application. It was my dream internship opportunity, a publishing company for children's books. I was reaching for my first star, I thought. I told her that I write, thinking that she would like to hear that. Better do not write at all, she responded, or you get money for doing it? I told her that I did not, and so she asked me why I was writing at all if I was not that good. That brought us closer. I lied to her when I told her that I had not heard anything about her here, in this country. In fact, the previous evening, the French couple who hosted me during my vacation showed her to me. They told me that she was a little cuckoo, And not all there, but that was not surprising. Everyone left her, she told me. Her parents passed away. Her husband found a different woman. Her son went sailing in the sea and had not returned. She did not want to do the type of work offered to her. She's mean and cold, my host told me. She lives in her wagon like a loner. She eats berries from the wilderness, wears the same clothes every day. I didn't tell them I knew her, knew how smart she was, how much work she'd done, how many stories she'd told, stories that people needed to hear. She'd reported the news, she'd written books, and she'd organized charitable events and so many other things. So many stars. It didn't matter. Estella is still a human. Her skin, tanned by the wind and the salty air, it is just a pretext which holds her bones together. Her eyes, studded with disillusions, no longer shine; her hands, covered in scratches and notes, look pained; her legs are tired of walking roads that do not bring her anywhere. Nevertheless, her heart, that which is wrung dry of joy, still lives. Every morning and evening Estella feels it, all of it. But she keeps living. Every day she grabs her basket and goes to the cliff by the sea. From up there, the sea that stole her son can be seen, all of it, like on the palm of one's hand outstretched. From up there, she'd be able to see her son returning, if he were to ever return. Throwing bread into the sea is, perhaps, Her way of telling it that she does not bear a grudge. Thousands of crumbles. Every day. As a... Tribute. Bread in exchange for some news. She waits for news now. She no longer seeks it out and tells it to others. She waits for the news she will never... Report to anyone. It is news that will only matter to her. (sighs) These crumbles of Estella are tattooed into my memory, like evidence that our life is always destroyed in the battle with destiny, like stale bread, like proof that every destiny is a swamp of
4: crumbs. Oh my goodness, this story is absolutely mind-blowing. The the figurative language in this piece is just so beautiful. Yeah, Thank you for sharing it's this with so us. Good. Thanks for being here, Lilia. Or
3: actually, actually. like <laughs> not technically here, because this is the first time, if you notice that the sound sounds a bit different, this is the first time that we have someone that we're interviewing and whose story is being read, but who isn't here with us today. At, in the studio, but also in the state and also in the coast. <laughs> like, She's in uh, Washington. Uh, mm-hmm. is in Washington. So thank you for taking the time out, Lilia, to be here, and for joining us for this phone interview.
6: Thank you so much for giving me a call, and I was really surprised to hear from you and uh, being asked to, to give this interview, so it's yeah. my pleasure.
4: Yeah, we're so excited <laughs> to hear your voice. I miss you so much. <laughs> so you begin your story by taking us through this fear of poverty, something that um, it's very real, but not something many people will even admit to feeling. And you list the ways that Estella learned from women how to cover up their fear. Um, it's it's a really beautiful sequence that we can picture in our own heads. You say you can skip a meal as long as you wear lipstick, or wine belongs in a glass outside the bottle. You pictured this so beautifully, and it makes me think, have you yourself ever felt the fear of poverty at any point? of your life? And if so, did it come from seeing Estella there
6: on the beach? Well, thank you for complimenting my work. Um, I I would like to say first, I described two aspects of poverty. So the first one of not having things and uh, being a- able to cover for those things. wear lipstick, drink wine, uh, do different kind of things to mm-hmm. pretend that you're not poor, to show that you actually live the life and you're happy and something can bring you joy to your life and make your life beautiful. And the other aspect is being emotionally empty. Mm -hmm. So the first kind of poverty I'm not afraid of because I I got a taste of it. I was growing through the poverty. Uh, If I connect to my first piece where I was standing in line for the doll and I didn't have things and all I had is support and love of my my loved ones, my grandmom, my dad, my mom. So that shows that I didn't live a rich life. I I was born poor and I was kind of, I had what I had. But um, yeah, emotional emptiness is the worst. Mm
3: -hmm. And that's
6: something uh, Estella experienced at the end. She realized that that's worse than not having material things and not having money. Money lost value for her. She didn't didn't realize that uh, money Is not what brings you happiness until the end when she lost her son and her husband left her for a different woman. So I guess that's the worst. I guess the being empty, emotional, and being drained emotionally.
3: That makes so much sense because at the end she isn't like you could picture her in so many ways. You could picture her like uh, like she wasn't like looking longingly at people who had things or who had you know material things she was looking at the ocean and just wishing for her son to come back because that's what she missed is like
6: that emotional that yeah, i don't know I, I, yeah i didn't say anything about her being poor like not having material things in, in paris mm-hmm. like she, she was fine she was doing fine she had a job she was she was okay but the depression she was sank into the the emotional state yeah. because of what happened to her what she lost along the way while she was trying to reach her stars where, she, where while she was trying to make a career where she was trying she was having different priorities in life she had different goals set up for her and uh it was yeah she realized that that wasn't worth it in the end
3: i think that that's definitely really ample throughout this piece yeah like you honored her really well a next question is a line that really got to me and one that's very close to me personally um close to home as an immigrant from a family of immigrants myself is this They had to swallow their pride, their honor, and their dignity, roll up their sleeves and accept work at the factories, restaurants, laundromats, homes of middle-class people. They babysat, washed, cooked, cleaned, and served all over Europe. Europe paid them with generosity from being diligent, responsible, hard workers. They paid them for pretending that they were made for these types of jobs, for pretending that they were happy. And that's the entirety of, like, the immigrant story and just... It's all these stars whose shine has been muted out of necessity and out of survival. You don't necessarily talk about an interaction between you and Estella. So it makes me wonder, did you ever speak to to her, to your muted star again? And when she was in this new life as the poor woman who like the couple that you stayed with even warned you again and basically insulted her to your face, not knowing how brightly she once shined. Like, did you ever speak to her again?
6: Uh, yes. In fact, I do talk to her once in a while. Um, I, she's beautiful inside and out. And I'm very proud that uh, she, uh, she, she, she trusts me. She talks to me. I mean, uh, she's not the kind of person who is open to everyone.
3: Mm-hmm. And uh,
6: I'm extremely honored that she lets me talk to her and she, she keeps in touch with me. Um, and I don't necessarily consider her poor. She's she has the most like she has intelligence. Yes. She's beautiful, and that's not something. Uh, I mean, that's that's a lot to have. Yeah, that makes one rich. I mean, if I were to say something in general, I don't think it's the reason to stop talking to someone only because they're poor. Yeah,
3: yeah.
6: So uh, yeah, if she was were poor and she didn't have a dime i would still continue talking to her yeah because she's beautiful and she's intelligent and she's she has a special role in my life that's such a beautiful thing to have i love that and Mm -hmm. i love how immortalized
3: she is in this piece yeah um i think true testament to that is that the the people that you stayed with didn't think much of her they kind of warned you against her but all of us here like we all and all of our listeners know who she is and know her impact with you and we know who she is beyond what they saw and i oh, think that's really and she's awesome. worth the praise
4: yes <laughs> mm-hmm. what would you like your listeners to take away from this the story that you've written
6: so the most important thing i would like to tell my listeners is that doesn't matter uh how high they try to reach for their stars and uh, what they're trying to reach in their life and their goals and careers and everything. The most important is to reach back to your family, to find time to spend with your loved ones, find time to spend with your husband, with your children, with your parents, because that's the values which are irreplaceable. Money, career, job, all, all, of that is important, but uh, you have to find time for your loved ones, because, like I said, going back to emotional emptiness—that's, that's the most hurtful and it was it, it's the most difficult thing probably to live with. I think it's hardest
3: to survive that one.
4: Yeah. Well, thank you, Lilia. Yeah, thank, thank you, you for so this, much.
3: for giving us like the most meaningful ten minutes of my entire <laughs> day.
6: Like, thank you so much for this. Thank you. I hope I was clear enough and I I tried to, you know, to show a different aspect of my story. It probably doesn't come at first when you read it first time or second time, but Mm. uh, it it requires a deeper reading to come to those things. And it probably takes to know the person and to know, uh, you know, what I'm talking about to, to know what I wrote about. Thank you so much. Thank you for your perspective.
4: Thank you so much for sharing. Bye. It was
6: so nice talking to you. Thanks.: okay.
2: Our last piece of the night was written in Tanzania by Natalie Gaccio. Natalie is a public administration major with aspirations to work for an international nonprofit that benefits developing countries. Her fallback is to become the President of the United States. Natalie was recently accepted in NYU's School of Public Policy for a master's in public administration, which she will attend if she could find the funding. After 21 years on this earth, Natalie has realized that the thing that gives her the most pleasure is bringing joy to those who are less fortunate. Let's take a listen to Fork This.
7: This thick paste, ugali as it's called in Tanzania and Kenya, is the staple food in sub-Saharan Africa. It is tasteless and has no nutritional value whatsoever. It's filling, though. The food of the lower class, Jackson tells us. I grew up on it. Jackson cradles the white substance in his hand and rolls it in quick, distinct motions back and forth across the inside of his palm. A white residue clings to his skin as he opens his fist to expose a perfect ball of dough-like paste. It sits squarely in the middle of his palm. I watch as he eyes it, like it's everything. Like it's holy. Like he's about to take communion. Adjacent to the remaining ugali pile sits a brown, meaty stew. Jackson studies it as though there's some secret strategy for building the perfect bite. He next glares at a floating chunk of stringy beef, spotting his point of entry. With one rapid motion, he dives in with his right hand while managing to keep the newly formed flour orb in his fingers. Before my eyes, he has transformed the small ball into a type of makeshift spoon mechanism. Now, every ingredient of this meal sits waiting on just a few fingers. He inspects quickly, approves, and bows his head down towards the bowl to eat. This was... strange. In Tanzania, a lot of things feel strange to me. Like the toilets. While Western toilets stand at least 26 inches above the ground to allow for some decent leisure time, Tanzanian toilets are strictly business. They lay planted in the ground. No bowl, just a porcelain-lined tunnel hole that descends beneath the reddish-purple African earth. At least horizontal ridges are etched along either side of the square basin, offering me much-needed feet placement guidance each time I awkwardly squat over the opening beneath me. Now, I don't want to give you the wrong idea here. Many Tanzanian toilets, flush, and many seem to be as clean, if not cleaner, than some I've seen here in New York City. But still, the squat they require would leave any Westerner puzzled. These are definitely not the toilets I clung to while vomiting up half-digested remnants of fruity cocktails at my old state school. And they're definitely not the ones my mother carefully prepared me for during months of meticulous potty training. The type she'd sit me on, feet dangling after she'd find me with my pants half-down in the middle of the hallway. The type she'd make me sit on until I made a decent amount of "Yeah, ya Sometimes, it would take me more than a few verses of Twinkle Twinkle or YMCA. And sometimes, we'd have to give up altogether and try again later. I guess the kind of toilets I'm used to weren't always easy either. During my first few days with Tanzanian toilets, many times I considered giving up and trying again later, but I don't bother singing Twinkle Twinkle. Squatting doesn't leave room for songs or games. I knew by the time I would get to How I Wonder, my ass would be marinating in my own secretions. The food and toilets aren't the only thing that's strange here, though. In Tanzania, everyone smiles and waves at you. They warmly greet all who pass by. Even judgmental floor toilet-hating New Yorkers. I am not used to this. In New York, people think you're insane if you smile at them. No less wave. And so, at first, I can't bring myself to wave back. It just feels weird. Both distant and intimate at the same time. On one occasion, I'm reminded that the last time I waved to someone was only a few days before I came to Tanzania. As I left my grandmother's nursing home on Long Island, I realized that a hug would be unnecessary on account that she doesn't remember who I am anymore. Perhaps a hug was too much, I thought. I tried, but when it didn't work, I settled for a wave. It was strong and big. I had wanted it to say, I know who you are, and I love you, even if you don't know me anymore. She waved back. So it takes me three and a half days and a liter of coke to finally use the floor toilet. It takes me 48 hours to adapt to the friendly waves I get and to actually wave back. It takes me an extra 15 hours on top of that to be the initiator of a first wave to some passersby outside my bus window. They wave back, like my grandma, happy to see me, but with no idea who I am. We're almost two weeks in now, and it seems that I still can't pursue the hand-on-food thing. I watch Jackson execute gracefully, seamlessly, and I think, there's nothing barbaric about this, there's nothing wrong with it. I think of that white hotel owner in Bagamoyo who demanded his staff to get him a knife and fork when they forgot, since after all, what did they expect for him to eat like you people? I'll make a mess if I eat like you people, I think. But that's the only reason I don't try. I see Jackson now, watching me eat. I've ordered Ugali, too. I want to try it, I had told him, even though there are sandwiches, soup, and my favorite food, spaghetti, on the menu here. He examines my dirty white hands, quite all the reflective fork, and observes how erratically I dig into the mound of dense flour with it. He watches how ineptly I throw a small, deformed brick of pasty goo into my hazel broth, and he's still watching when I wait a few long seconds to let it soak. Pieces of debris fall on the embroidered tablecloth as I extract it. But I manage to get the remaining globs into my mouth. I know that this is not the right way to eat this. It's terribly obvious that I'm doing it all wrong. That I'm ruining it. But Jackson says nothing. I watch as he smiles. And my mess. I know. He thinks I'm strange.
3: And strange you are. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for being here, Natalie. To be weird with us once more.
4: Oh, well, you're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) So, through your journey in Tanzania, we travel back and forth to Tanzania and New York, where we see certain things happening in Tanzania that would mean a whole other thing in New York, especially the whole waving and smiling. That's for sure. <laughs> um, in the beginning of the piece, um, Jackson's eating Ugali with his hands, and it leaves you a little lost because that's not exactly the way we would eat that meal in New York. Yeah. And then I love how, like, in the end, you look like the strange one for, for eating it with a fork because, like, that's, like, weird to him. He's just like, what is going on here? So I guess my question is... is um, What was it like to try to connect um, to the food culture of Tanzania and just just the culture in general? And what was it like to switch roles um, to be the strange one?
7: Um, Great question. (laughs) I think at first I was, I don't know. I just thought everything was just crazy. My world was upside down. And then, um, like in my story, I think it, it took me a few days to adapt until like, I kind of accept that everyone's really nice there, <laughs> because mm-hmm. I don't know coming from new york you- you like see people and everyone looks mad and sad and always angry, and um I don't know i I definitely it took me a few days, but I ended up like I think I loved it when I was there. I definitely was like, I'm not going back home, yeah. everything here is so perfect,
4: yeah, you totally feel that, way. and
7: um with the food like I thought. Everything was great. I'm am a vegan, so, uh, like in New York, I'd like I you know there's like 20 vegan places in like Lower Manhattan. So like being a vegan in Tanzania was like a little difficult, but like Ugali in my piece, it's it's vegan, so like it was really easy to eat it. It was definitely hard for me to like grasp touching my food, mm-hmm. especially because like ever since we're little. Uh, your You're parents are like stop, stop using your hands yeah. well, why are you using your left hand to hold the fork while you cut with the knife <laughs> with the yeah right. <laughs> exactly yeah, yeah. <laughs> but i think like it, like i just immersed myself and like it was definitely the right way to do it with your hands with the fork it was insane
3: <laughs> <laughs> that's so interesting and you like describe this thing as, as like sticky substance and jackson calls it like um the food of the lower class is mm-hmm. that the words yeah mm-hmm. do you ever feel like like here obviously like with your your you know you you have the ability to eat like the way that you want here mm-hmm. and the way that you know do you ever feel like do you ever long for that like do you ever like miss it or like crave the food of like the lower class well so ugali it it really
7: does not have a taste. Like if you if you just eat this like the the flour substance, it kinda tastes like nothing. Um so so the stew or whatever, I go I would get like the vegetarian one. Um so that would be the thing that had the taste. And
1: mm-hmm.
7: I don't like I I'm not sure if I miss it. I don't think I ever like crave it that much, but I definitely like miss the aesthetic of <laughs> i yeah. eating with my hands and the, like I would order it just to be like, Yeah, I want to eat with my hands today. Yeah. <laughs>
4: That's so I think Yeah, I definitely miss, like, I feel like the food is part of, like, every culture. Because, like, I also went on this trip to Tanzania, and I definitely miss, like, the culture and, like, just being there and just being around the people and the food and just just everything, really. So I think you will kind of, like, miss it in that sense. Yeah.
2: So another one of my favorite parts in your piece is comparing your grandmother, who is losing her memory, to people of Tanzania and your relationship with them. You say it felt distant and intimate at the same time, and I think that's very powerful. What was it like experiencing this with people from a country that is new to you?
7: Wow. Um, I guess, like, I just, like, not, not, when I first went there, I thought everyone was kind of creepy. <laughs> <laughs> like, to be honest, I was like, why are these people smiling and waving at me? I like, are, like, are I don't know. In New York, if someone does, does that to me, I'm like, oh, God, like, what, what do they want? <laughs> um, so, at first, I was like, oh, God, like, everyone everyone like sees me as like a white American tourist and is just trying to like be nice. And I don't even know like, but then um once like a few, a few days in, like I said, and the previous question, like I, I kind of adapted and uh, it, it's like quite pleasing to be in this, to be in like a country where like everyone, there's just such a like community there. I feel like everyone kind of like, know, like just wave it to your neighbor, even if, like you have no idea who they are, and um, I, I like I can't even describe the intimate feeling. Like, the thing with my grandma, like, um, why do I keep saying like <laughs> 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 the thing with, what, what the thing with my grandma? Uh, she, well, she passed recently after I wrote the story, which was a little sad, but oh. um, so like, you know, you like for her. Like, deep down, like, everyone would just hope that maybe, like, she does know who, like, all of her, the history we've had together. Like, she wouldn't remember my name, but, like, uh, the whole family would be, like, deep down, she, like, knows, and she, like, has these connections, and she feels love, like, when you come in the room, but she just has no idea, like, who you are. So, like, she'll smile and wave, and, like, you you really hope, like, deep down that, like, that she's fully there,
4: but you just can't express it. Can you, can you like, compare the intimacy that you you've had with the waving with your grandmother compared to like the native people in Tanzania like what was like the differences and like similarities between that I think it's so
7: the way I I don't know I, I feel <laughs> like it's real. it's really hard to like grasp the concept but like people would wave at you in like such a genuine way that like you just like I don't know you felt
3: you feel like there like has to be something there
7: yeah like there, there has to be like some sort of connection there. It makes you really think of of human connection, and I don't know.
3: That's so interesting, cause you 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 convey this really strong feeling of this grandmother who's like. You're like this is my grandmother, but she can't articulate that I'm like necessarily her grandchild. Mm-hmm. But there is like that 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 feeling there, and that like, you know, like that's grandma still, and then <laughs> these people. They don't know you necessarily the same way, but there is still that feeling there, too, where they just kind of like genuinely mean, like happy to see you or just like trying to be, you know, Mm -hmm. like make you not necessarily make you feel good, but it just makes you feel good. And not being able to articulate that feeling of like, wow, this is so nice. is something really interesting about how you put that into words and made us feel that without you really like knowing what it was yourself.
4: They kind of just always made you feel welcome. Yeah. You know what I mean? They're just, just, like, just happy to see you there.
3: In summation, what do you want listeners to take away from this story?
7: Um, Well, originally, when I first wrote this, it was, uh, like, the second week into our trip, and my parents... And all my relatives were like, "You're going to Africa, you're going to die." <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, they're
4: yeah, they're like the that. American
7: Westerners that were.
3: I can mm-hmm. imagine that, like, written on a goodbye cake, like, "You're going to Africa, <laughs> you are going to die." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, You'll have a good trip. <laughs> so,
7: like, they when I when I finally did come back, they were like, "We honestly, we genuinely thought that this is like what we were saying goodbye forever." Which is crazy that they even let me go after they said that. <laughs> but um so I wrote the story to kinda like send a message to my family and people like my family that were like Tanzanians aren't like, you know, this like cavemen type type yeah, yeah. civilization where they eat with their hands and they, you know, they're just always like hanging around, like being friendly. <laughs> like Um, but yeah, I was trying to I was trying to express a way that humanizes them more than you know people would be like oh you're gonna go to Africa like, you don't really hear about the people so that like so much so mm-hmm. and I, I love talking about the toilets <laughs> my parents because <laughs> my, my, pa- my my parents like didn't understand they were like I don't get are you like squatting over a hole in the ground I was like no no like I swear I sw- like it's a toilet like they purposely have these floor toilets that are just like our toilets just in the ground, so you have to squat. And I could imagine that, like, the elders there have like awesome thighs. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, I, you know, I would consider using it maybe in like a future house of mine.
4: Oh, <laughs> just, god, I would just not
3: to get, just to get your squats in while
7: you Yeah, get those after. squats in. Imagine, I bet that's why they're all in shape.
4: Yeah, <laughs> that's probably why they all have like nice butts, to be yeah. quite honest. Well, on
3: the note of good butts. And being a thick vegan. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for coming here. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you for sharing this story with us.
2: That concludes our eighth episode, Found in Translation.
1: We are all so excited to bring you new stories in the upcoming months, amplifying these younger voices from backgrounds you don't normally hear about in creative nonfiction. You can always find out more at www.lifeoutloudpodcast.com or by searching Life Out Loud Podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud.
2: We'd like to thank everyone who helps make this possible, including our sound engineers and editors, our episode writers, our web designers, everyone behind the scenes here at Life Out Loud.
4: And to our audience, we hope you love these stories as much as we did. It was a joy to bring them to you. A very special thank you to everyone listening in. We'll see you soon, and... Good good night. night!